You're listening to the She's Unshakable podcast. I'm your host, Fleur Lonsdale. And if you're looking to create incredible courage, resilience, and unshakable belief in yourself, then this podcast is for you. Each episode, I'll be interviewing incredible adventurers, athletes, and entrepreneurs to dig deep into the strategies and tools they use to create unwavering courage and belief so that you can learn how to never give up on your goals and achieve the life of your dreams. Hey, 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 welcome to podcast 33 and I'm so excited to have Jenny Wordsworth on the podcast today. We're going to be talking about all her adventures through the South Pole, what the challenges brought for her and everything in between because this girl is next level. Like, can you believe going through the South Pole completely on your own? Like the whole thing on your own. Um, Anyway, so excited for her to chat with us today and cannot wait for her to tell you all about everything that's gone on in her life and um, everything few and far between. Cool. Welcome, Jenny. I'm so excited to have you on the She's Unshakable podcast. Welcome to the chat. I can't wait for you to share your story. Um, and so before we get before we get into everything that you've been about, what you've been up to, I'd love for you to share your morning routine with our listeners, if you have one. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, it really depends if I'm in like full on training mode, getting ready for an expedition or not, because um, the training has to be so kind of planned out. Um, but I always start um, with a moleskin journal. I get through a lot of those journals and <laughs> I kind of fill it with ramblings every morning. Um, it can be anything, wild ideas I've had overnight, um, favorite quotes, anything like that. Um, and then the next thing I always do is I have a to do list for the day. Um, I love writing down what I need to get done by that day and then taking it off as I go. Um, and I use the Calm app quite a lot, if you've heard of that app. Um, so it's like 10 minutes of meditation a day. Um, I never thought meditation would um, be of use, to be honest, um, but I find it quite brilliant. I've been doing that for about a year now. Um, yeah, I get up super early. Um, I love faff time. <laughs> so I like getting up, uh, say 40, 45 minutes before anyone else in the house and just sitting somewhere quiet and getting through that, you know, writing that to-do list, doing the meditation, yeah. writing up, um, and just having that me time before I crack on with the day. Nice. Sounds good. So the Cam app, I haven't actually heard of that one. There's so many meditation apps out there now though. Um, is that C-A-M? C-A-L-M, yeah. So oh, calm. calm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I have heard uh, that. You're right, yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was my... Scottish twang. Um, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So how long have you been meditating for? Has that been, like, an ongoing thing for a while, or is that fairly new? It's it's definitely new to me. Um, I remember my um, husband telling me to get into it for a long time, and I was like, no, I don't need to meditate. I'm so chilled. I'm this, that, and the other. Um, <laughs> and that was nonsense. Um, I find it amazing. Um, I, I think I do something in expeditions and kind of long endurance events that I didn't realize what it was, but it's kind of going into what they call the flow state. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Yeah, and so um, I listened to a podcast about the flow state, and I was like, wait, hold on, that's what I do in long races, Um, but I can't always get into it, Um, and this was sort of saying, you know, use meditation to to kind of access that flow state more easily, and I was like, oh, I think I'll give this a try, Um, and and Matt was like, oh, so once you hear it on a podcast, you do it, but not when I don't do it. (laughs) 
and I find it amazing. Yes, yeah, so I, I started doing it actually when I got back from my first expedition in Antarctica. Um, and just thought it was incredible. Um, and uh, yeah, I do it every day and I, I really get a lot from it. Yeah, awesome. It's so funny. I think I did a podcast on Flow State a couple of weeks ago. Um, oh, really? I was, yeah, talking about how I'm the same, like if I'm going like surfing or kite surfing or skiing or even just hiking, I'm always in this state. And I was like, how do you get back into this state? And it's so funny <laughs> talking about meditation, although it's a different type of flow state, I feel um, still definitely. It's amazing how like in the long run, if you're doing it every day, even if it's a small bit every day, like the the difference that it can make to your sort of overall life. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about you, your adventures, um, why you decided to to do all your skiing across um, Antarctica and all this. I'd love to know where that sort of stemmed from. Um, and yeah, a little bit more about your background. Yeah, so um, I'm a lawyer. Um, that's my proper job, if you like. Um, and then also <laughs> I'm part of the North Face Explorer team. So one of their explorers, uh, explorers rather, um, grew up in Borneo. Um, and that is not where I picked up this Scottish accent. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I went to a French school in Borneo um, and um, grew up living all over the world. So Qatar, um, Paris for a while, parents were in Nigeria for a bit. And then when it was time to kind of do GCSEs and A-levels, came back to um, to Scotland. Um, so quite an adventurous childhood in Borneo, um, playing yeah. in the rainforest, that kind of thing. Loved it. Um, but, yeah, came back to the UK for kind of university and proper exams um became a lawyer um really loved being a lawyer worked quite hard to, to get where I was um but I was really aware from an early stage that a lot of the partners in the law firm were quite miserable um and I knew in the long term it wasn't going to be something um I wanted to stay doing in a law firm um, and it wasn't long actually before I moved in-house um to a company uh, and that was, well, I believed it was more of a nine-to-five role, but um, it didn't quite turn out to be entirely true, but it's definitely more of a work-life balance that I could, I wanted that rather than being in, in the law firm. Um, and then I think I was about, I was quite a junior lawyer when um, a large, um, turned out to be benign tumour was found in my abdomen, and I had some quite nasty treatment to shrink it in size before they could then um, remove it um, by surgery. And I actually signed up to a uh, the Marathon de Saab race you've heard of. Oh, yeah. um, it's like a six, maybe seven day race through the Sahara Desert. And I signed up to that race um, whilst I was completely high on morphine uh, in the hospital, using the hospital Wi-Fi and the iPad. Um, <laughs> yeah, awesome. I, I had no memory of signing up for the race. Oh, um, like none at all um and it turns out I didn't I mean I signed up for the race but I was on a waiting list because it wasn't that far away um from the event itself and I think what I was doing at the time was just like I need to focus on something for the future um I'm going to be okay I know I'm going to be okay um and I just need something to to focus on completely forgot about it because obviously I didn't remember doing it oh and then I think gosh. about four months later I got this email um asking for further payment because um I had moved from the waiting list to get a spot in the race <laughs> and I was like I think you made a mistake I, I don't it's, yeah I suddenly clicked what I'd done and was like wow well I'm definitely doing it now and I think after wow that, that's yeah. not a half-assed marathon either <laughs> I know it's quite a big one <laughs> yeah my goodness um, yeah, and it just, I think I, I definitely watched a documentary about it in hospital too, um, and just thought that looks incredible. Um, 
and also something I had no idea if I could do or not. So let's just let's just go for it. And then after that, ultra running really became a way of life. I fell in love with the people who take part in those kind of events. Yeah. Um, running long and slow, and I've just made friends for life. And I think once you've done something like the marathon de Sable, you kind of realize, wait a minute, I I, I did that. Um, I was okay at it. Like, what else could I could I do or am I capable of that I didn't really think I could because it just you know on paper seems so um, um, far fetched. Um, so yeah, after that, all sorts of crazy endurance events came my way, came onto my radar. Um, I'm not going to list them all, but I think I, like some memorable ones were running through the Gobi Desert in China. Um, it's a 400-kilometer race. That was incredible. Oh um, and then gosh. racing through the Dashi Loot Desert in Iran. Um, and even just visiting those countries was just so incredible and me, getting to meet other um, women runners there. Um, and it wasn't long after that I was approached um, to go professional with the ultra running. Uh, by a clothing brand and um, so I signed those contracts I uh, quit my job um, uh, yeah, and yeah then we ha- I had two years in Texas um, training and racing as a pro and I think we moved back to the UK about a year and a half ago um, and I really missed um, I call it lawyering I'm sure that's not the word <laughs> missed lawyering <laughs> uh, so I did um, get a job back as head of legal for a renewable energy company here in London um, and that whole time you know having those two years um, to focus on the the training and the racing and I admit it's not all it's cracked up to be um, if anything I probably overtrained. Yeah. Um, I find that I was I did much better in events where I still had a job actually uh, because it's impossible to overtrain because you're at work. Yeah. Um, so the training is, you know, lunchtime, evening, weekends, and, and mornings. Um, so I had a lot of injuries in that time, to be honest. But, um, but yeah, so during that time, um, I did have the headspace to plan this uh, first expedition to Antarctica. Um, and I decided I'd like to ski solo, um, unassisted and unsupported, so just completely by yourself um, with everything you could need for the whole journey in a sled behind you. Uh, for 700 miles from the coastline of Antarctica to the South Pole. Um, and yeah, I, probably, I think it took about two years to organise that first expedition. I knew nothing about polar exploration, uh, <laughs> like nothing at all. Um, and obviously you have to find the funding. It's a huge expedition. Yeah. And um, yes, yeah, so we flew out there uh, 2018, I think it was, November. Um, the season in Antarctica runs from November to January. And uh, before attempting, um, so, sorry, I should add, I was trying to break the woman's speed record, uh, which was 38 days, I think, plus change. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, we did our, Matt came with me, we had our honeymoon um, in Antarctica, we climbed um, Mount Vincent together first. Nice. Um, and I'd always planned to climb Mount Vincent. Um, I always, uh, so I'm a really keen mountaineer as well. And um, Vincent was always something I wanted to climb. And I thought I'm only going to be able to visit Antarctica once in my lifetime. It's a very expensive place to go to. Um, and so if I'm going there, I'm definitely climbing this mountain while we're there. And it's also a great way to acclimatize before you then go for the world record attempt um, because it is quite high altitude. And, um, yeah, did that. Then Matt flew home uh, to look after the dog. And I (laughs) took a little little flight um, where the pilot kind of drops you off um, on the coastline, waves you off and off they go, and you're completely alone um, on your way to the South Pole. And um, that first attempt ended uh didn't end as planned i got a bowel infection and peritonitis after i think it was 22 days um solo on the ice and mm. was really sick um had to be medevaced taken back to the uk 
Um, and I knew immediately on the flight home that I was going to be doing it again. And so I came back <laughs> that same year, later in the year, so the next no- so November 2019, yeah. um, and attempted it again. And this time I made it to the pole. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. I think my family were relieved to go up and urge to do it again. <laughs> So what what was the the driving force behind doing that? Not only doing it, but doing it on your own as well. Like what what went through your mind, sort of like thinking that was yeah. what you wanted to do. Um, so re- I think the reason for doing it on my own is um, so much of what I've done has been in teams or with other people, which I absolutely love. Um, especially like all woman teams, I love doing things like that. And I just thought I would love to know if I have it in me to do something of this magnitude, you know, where completely solo, where everything, every decision made, wrong or right, is on you. And you need to have, you know, normally in a team, everyone can have different skill sets and you bring that to the table. So you don't need to be um, super experienced in navigation if the other person is. You can just know a little bit about it, for example. But with something like this, Antarctica, you know, such an extreme environment and you're solo, everything is on you and you need to know everything inside out. Um, and that kind of scared me a bit, but I also love the idea of being just not really reliant on anyone. Um, it definitely takes a village to get you to the start line of something like this, but once you're actually there and starting, it's it's completely you. And that was a bit daunting and a bit sort of interesting. Um, yeah, I thought I'd just give it a go. <laughs> Good work. And so obviously doing it once and essentially having to give up halfway or however far along you were, like how did how did that make you feel and what made you sort of go you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna do this again especially if it's expensive yeah um it was a big ask to do it again so when I came back um even though internally I knew I would I was definitely going back I kept that quiet for a while (laughs) um didn't voice it to anyone for a while because I just wanted to make sure that my reasons for going back were definitely the right ones yeah. Um, so your why for doing these kinds of things is everything. Um, and I didn't want it to just be all because I feel like a failure. I need to go back. Um, and it's also, it can be quite a selfish endeavor doing something like this. It takes over your entire life. Um, this isn't just some small expedition. It's something that you're normally planning, you know, several years in advance. Yeah. Um, and then also there's going back to your sponsors and being like, so guys, you know, I didn't make it the first time. Do you have my back? to kind of go back and I just I was quite worried about having that conversation um, and it was brilliant so my main sponsor is um, like a sugar-free protein bar company in the US Atkins who supported me forever and they were just like oh you know we were waiting for you to ask but yeah that I mean that meant the world um, I not what I was expected I'd understand if, and they're like no it's not it's not about you know making it or not making it um, as always it's the journey and sure. they actually do yeah a lot of the work they do is like people learn get so much more out of failures than they do you know necessarily successes and and so yeah I had a long chat with my family about it um and it's the training it can take up just a huge amount of time but I knew I wanted to do this again so I didn't feel like I was really giving up everything but you definitely need to involve everyone in your life because um everything kind of becomes about Antarctica 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 Mm. Um, every weekend, every spare moment is spent kind of training. So, um, yeah, uh, I I knew I was going back, um, and I just did everything possible to to make that happen. It was my focus again. It, it was it was definitely difficult with work because I promised the board that I would only be doing this major expedition in Antarctica once. 
Um, and then I kind of came back and I think it was immediately obvious to everyone that I was going to go again. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Sorry guys. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so obviously, I mean, when you get sick, it maybe is a bit of a different story, but having that resilience to go, you know, what, what if I try again and I get sick again, or what if something else happens? Like what gave you that resilience in that sort of like push inside you to go you know I am going to do this again and I'm going to finish it oh I think uh, I am a resilient person and I think I think that's because I am the queen of failing (laughs) Um, I don't mind that I'm more than happy to to be that way I think if you do more in life you've got to be able to to understand that there will be more failures and know how to process them um so for me having the resilience to go back um, it just was, I mean, it's so simple, but it was just unfinished business. I had not achieved what I set out to achieve. Um, and I just didn't think that failing was, was a negative. Um, and I, I definitely, it was important to deal, you know, it did feel like a failure when I first came back. I'm not completely immune from that. And I had, I was in hospital for about a week when I got back and then I had three days at home where I was just in my pajamas watching yeah. Netflix. I put my phone on airplane mode. I just moped. Um, and was like, you know, super negative. And I, I, you need that time. I think it's important to deal with that. It's like a temporary frustration, um, which is totally human and really important. But then after that, I just crack on and I come up with plan B. I, I don't stay down about these kind of things for long. Um, yeah, and I, there's just no way I wasn't going back. So made the decision, kept, kept it very quiet for a while. <laughs> Um, and, um, yeah, I definitely did some homework on, you know, how do I, what did I, is there anything I could change about the bowel infection and did I do anything that I shouldn't have done? And no, it wasn't really related to that. And so, yeah, I, I just came, me moving on, like, how do you get back up and keep going is coming up with kind of plan B for how to, to, to fix how you're feeling. And if it hadn't been returning to Antarctica, that had been wrong, it, it would have been something else. Yeah, for sure. Um, there, there was something I've, just had it in my head then I've just completely forgotten what it was but um when you're when you sort of went back to do it um sort of like obviously you're you're the kind of person who's just gonna go you know what I want to do this this is this it's on my vision like I need to I need to finish it because I've set my mind to it I feel like there's a lot of people who go right this is my vision this is what I want to achieve and as soon as something backlashes or something goes wrong or or they fail like you say they go okay maybe this just isn't meant to be maybe this isn't this isn't meant to be the the journey that I'm meant to be taking like did those thoughts ever cross your mind no (laughs) awesome I think I don't know if I'm incredibly stubborn there's loads of moments like that um when you're trying to get the corporate sponsorship to do something like this you get knocked down all the time yeah um it's not it's not a failure it's it's you just pivot you learn from it you get feedback on you know is it something they didn't like about your pitch or they didn't really understand where the return on investment came from like you just keep keep going um and i think it always goes back to your why like why are you doing this why does it matter to you and if it's if the why is strong enough you just keep going and it's it doesn't mean it's fun to get a no <clears throat> um but you know if you gave up then i don't think your why in the first place was strong enough um you're just always learning and moving forward and then it's just never a failure so Um, what was your why 
um, I am so fascinated in pushing my own what like what am I truly capable of um and I think actually that's what uh, that's what scared me a little bit about this <clears throat> this expedition so what on the return attempt um where I did make it um and I was again aiming for um the speed record but I think what I learned from the first attempt to going back to the second attempt was the focus couldn't be on just the record which it very much was for me um the first time so I learned a lot and sort of making that that is the nice to have and actually the the real achievement is just reaching <clears throat> the pole um but I was on pace for the new world record um until about 200 miles from the south pole <coughs> excuse me where I had um this condition called polythi um, it does affect more women um, than men, um, and I think that's to do, or doctors rather, believe that's to do with where women kind of carry their fat, which is more around their bums and their thighs. And basically the, the fat there, um, and partly the muscle, gets really cold and injured, and it can open up into these uh, raw ulcers. Ooh. Um, yeah. Um, there are some photos on the internet of mine, actually, and it's... it's <laughs> um, it looks like... Oh, it looks like a, the inside of a pomegranate is probably the nicest way I could describe it. Um, oh, so yeah, so for the last yeah the last two hundred miles, I um, skied on that, and it starts off with these small ulcers, mm-hmm. and they opened up. Um, and then one day I was skiing in a storm, a complete whiteout, couldn't see anything up or down, nothing. Um, and you fall over a lot more in those conditions because you have kind of no depth perception. Yeah. And um, I took quite a minor fall, and in trying to break my fall. I put my leg out and I heard and felt as all these little ulcers split open into one big one. Yeah, I just kind of lay in the snow and and cried. (laughs) Um, But that's, coming back, you know, this was only in January, um, landed back into London um, straight from from finishing. Um, So I carried on skiing on that injury. It was absolute agony. So you did another 200 miles with that? Yeah, I did, yeah. um, Oh my goodness. I mean, the, the doctors there obviously spoke to them about it and they um, I'd kind of speak to them on the satellite phone a couple of times a week about how the leg was doing. And I had one piece of um, dressing with me. You're obviously not carrying much. If you're carrying everything in a sled, mm. you don't have this huge med bag. Um, I had one strip of oh um, dressing for it. And each time it also opened, I would just cut exactly what was needed off that bit of dressing and stick it on. Um, and I was really running out. I think I had like this tiny thumbnail size oh piece goodness. by the end. Um, but it's it's the most painful thing I've ever done. And I think I've always known I was resilient. Um, but knowing I had the mental strength to carry on skiing through that. And it's not just the skiing, it's so painful. It's like putting your tent up and yeah. taking it down in a storm when it's windy. And it's so painful on that, on that leg. And a little bit on my inner arm as well. Um, so I know I've always known I'm, you know, I definitely am a resilient person, probably from all the, the ultra running events before that. But having the mental strength to ski through that injury has actually I've come back and it's actually frightened me a little bit. Um, and I'm still kind of processing it and thinking it through now uh, because, you know, being an endurance athlete is partly about being able to push through hard things. It's not it doesn't have to be fun to be fun, as the saying goes. Um, but I, there's definitely a balance. So I think. You have to be so careful. Like, what your greatest asset, your mental strength, could end up being um, damaging. And I still don't know how I skied on it. Um, I landed back in the UK and was taken to hospital, and I've had two operations and a skin graft on it to fix the leg. Wow. Um, 
and what are we now like May so that was in February um and it's healed really well I mean my scar is is quite something I think it'll take it a year to kind of look a bit more normal um but uh, I mean like the doctor who did the operation said you know I hope you wear that scar with pride um and I really do and I know some people think you know why on earth did you carry on skiing through that but it was it was my why. <laughs> um, I, I didn't mind not getting the speed record. Um, and I'm quite proud of myself for actually not caring about that because, you know, the Jenny who attempted it the first time um, was absolutely gutted she didn't get the record. Mm. And I really had to reframe um, from the first expedition to the second to truly not care about the record and that it was just a nice bonus. And that's really hard. Like, I'm really competitive with myself. And so um, I think my yeah the the biggest achievement for me is I'm I'm really happy that I even now I don't have moments where I think oh I wish I got that record like it is a, an enormous achievement for me to have just reached the South Pole yeah um, and I think it's actually enough to know that you know I was on world record pace until <laughs> that leg split open um but yeah it's I think when I was actually in hospital they brought in um a sports psychologist um, which was such a great move by the surgeon. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure I really need that. But I was getting these these really odd flashbacks um, where I was dreaming. I'd kind of wake up in hospital. I was only there for about a week. Um, but the whole room in the ward had turned into Antarctica. And there'd be, always be a storm, so there was all this snow going around me. Um, and every single dream was slightly different, but it was someone stopping me from getting to the pole. Um, and it could be, I mean, it was like one dream was just a man standing there with a sign saying, the South Pole is closed, go back. <laughs> <laughs> um, just nonsense, but the same kind of, you know, same thing every time. And I talked it through with a psychologist and her kind of theory was you were so adamant that you were getting to the South Pole, you never, ever entertained the idea of not getting there. Like no matter what, even with this injury, you were getting there and now your body it's almost like your brain hasn't caught up and realized that you actually made it and your body relaxed now, you're safe, everything's fine. Um, and then I also had some quite, um, some really bad, it's a form of like post-traumatic stress, um, mm. but very, very short term. Nothing, you know, um, like others have had to deal with when they've, you know, been at war, had some serious trauma. This was a very kind of a short term form of that. But the most kind of traumatic thing that happened to me at the end of that expedition was um, when I arrived at the South Pole, there was, um, and there's not very many people at South Pole, you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, so there's sort of a very small tent operation there. Um, and there happened to be a doctor there, which normally there isn't. They're normally at the main base camp, which is Union Glacier. Uh, several hundred miles away and um, he was there and they just you know wrapped up um the leg and kept me comfortable but they couldn't remove the dressing because um it's the kind of dressing you have to be in a shower and mm -hmm. um, soak it for about 40 minutes and then it kind of slips off and then also it's stuck to raw skin mm -hmm. you can't just peel it off um and so i had a couple of days at the south pole and we couldn't fly back to the main base camp because of bad weather and so the doctor just kept me on beer and uh, codeine. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, beer, codeine, and tramadol. Um, and I was just so, so spaced out. And they've got a lot of videos of me just talking nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't really walk. It's as if my body, I mean, that last day of skiing is etched in my memory forever. Yeah. Um, it just I could see the South Pole finally in the building there. There's like a scientific research base, and I just couldn't believe that after everything over the last, you know, it was three, four years of 
you know, I was finally arriving. Um, but I just couldn't walk once I arrived. My body just just gave up. But the once we did get back to the main base camp, so after a couple of days, we flew out. Um, I have to. I obviously had to get in the shower. Um, and I was given some whiskey and some more painkillers through the shower curtain. They just kept feeding me painkillers, and I had to soak it and then peel peel it oh. off. And then um, I'm okay talking about it now, but there was like maybe a, I mean yeah a month after getting back in the immediate kind of I re I mean I couldn't shower for a while anyway after the surgeries. Um, but when I needed to start showering again and, and getting the wound wet and the dressings wet, it was a very very unpleasant thing for me to go through um and the psychologist was amazing helping me deal with that but um so yeah that and she actually referred me to this book and um, that I'm halfway through reading called the body keeps the score um and I think it's really helped me realize that whilst your biggest strength might be this kind of you know I can push through everything I had no idea that I had it in me to push through that kind of pain yeah. um, and I think you need to tread carefully with that because it's not a case of oh well if I did that what else I can do it's like well hold on there is there is um you know, there's pros and cons, and like the book title says, the body keeps the score. So I think it's fine to be the way I am, um, but you definitely need to allow yourself time to kind of process what you've done to your body. Um, and yeah, there'll be, I actually think the scar on my leg looks a little bit like the outline of Antarctica, but no one else agrees with me on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be so smart from the doctors to do that, hey? Get yeah. it like tattooed around it or something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how long did it take you in the end? So in the end, I was 44 days, I think. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. let alone 44 days of skiing, like, and dragging your all your stuff with you, but being on your own as well, like, it's it's a whole new level of of what goes through your mind and, and, you know, I mean, great flow state, I guess. You'd have probably been in flow state for most of it, which is possibly another reason why you can you know why you've got that resilience to pull through but were there any sort of mind challenges that were going through your that were going through your head like whilst you were doing it um so I I really love um I kind of see that time alone as a real luxury awesome I just don't get any other time in life yeah um like truly truly being alone like how often does that actually happen yeah um, so I I just love the time and the space to think, and um, and a lot of people assume you know the kind of the iPhone or the the um, your iPod Shuffle or whatever must be filled with music and podcasts and audiobooks. Um, and I did have them as a backup, but I I think I listened to music on two or three days in total. Wow. Um, normally when it's fantastic weather and you're like, I'm just going to ski and like sing out loud and it's hilarious because there's no one around me. <laughs> no one can hear this terrible singing and I'm having a great time. And, and then I had, I had a couple of um, podcasts that I kind of saved um, to listen to while I was there. And I think I got through one of them um, and mm-hmm. I got through one audiobook. Um, it's the Diaries of um, Shackleton. Um, and that was really special because I was sort of skiing on the route that they took to arrive at the South Pole for the very first time. So that was really cool. But other mm-hmm. than that, um, no, I, I honestly, it was mostly in that flow state. Um, and I just really enjoyed that peace and quiet. But I did notice that there was something playing on my mind. Like I hadn't fixed a piece of kit the night before. I'd forgotten. Like kit's always breaking. So you're always getting holes in your gloves. You've got to sew them up. And every single minute of your time in the tent in the morning and the tent at nighttime, is very kind of structured because you have so much to do 
and you're trying to get it all done as you know, quickly and efficiently as possible so you maximize the amount of sleep and recovery time. And so um, I did notice if I hadn't got the time to do something I'd forgotten, that would kind of mess with my flow state a bit because I'd be kind of ruffled mm-hmm. that I hadn't, hadn't done it, I'd forgotten. Um, but no, I, I really love the solo element. Um, I think people often ask, like, aren't you scared? And I think honestly, so kind of give context, in Antarctica at that time of year, it's 24-hour sunlight. Um, I often wonder if it would have been different if you know I'd experienced darkness. Yeah. Um, obviously, it would get much colder and the sun had gone, um, but just kind of it being light all the time, um, I think that plays a part in it not being a kind of scary situation. Um, there's definitely, you know, you ski over some really small crevasses, um, and I have mapping information on where the major ones are and simply avoid them. I don't go anywhere near them. Yeah. And if you do, then I've gone the wrong way. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, some of the storms can be quite daunting, um, especially as you're skiing along and you can sort of see them coming in. You can just, like, there's so much sky there, as you can imagine. You can see the fronts rolling in, they roll in fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of quite hard because you know your day is about to change. Um, it's actually gets to the point of feeling quite depressing because uh, you slow down so much, it becomes much colder. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, I mean, I had a couple of times where, so for me, it gives me quite bad nausea being in a complete whiteout. Yeah. And the only way I can describe it is like being in a, the inside of a marshmallow <laughs> and having to navigate. <laughs> and so you have a chest harness with a compass on it. So that's kind of hanging out in front of you and you cannot take your eyes off that compass. If you do just for a minute, you will com- go completely the wrong direction. Um, so you're staring down all day, kind of gives you a bit of um, neck ache. And for me, not being able to kind of figure out up or down um, no depth perception, like I said before. Um, I vomited a few times into my mask, and then on the really bad storm days, it just freezes immediately. And then you can't really deal wow. with that until you're back in the tent at night. So you're skiing along with this kind of frozen vomit oh, inside no. the mask. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> so, that's so uh, So things like that are not fun. Uh, <laughs> like, really not fun. Um, but, you know, once they're done, they're done, you're back. And it, it, it always fascinated me that no matter what happened during the day, when you are in your tent in that cozy, warm sleeping bag, you've got like dehydrated dinner of macaroni and cheese, and you're like, this tastes amazing. Like, what on earth was I moaning and crying about 20 minutes ago? It's just ridiculous. I'm absolutely fine. Da, da, and then, you know, go to bed with that, that good mindset for the next day. I was going to say, um, what kind of food did you eat along the journey? <laughs> yeah, so I did a lot of. Um, I've been a low-carb athlete for a long time, so I do um, high-fat, low-carb, and that's great for an expedition like this yeah. because um, I get more calories uh, my per weight, uh, per gram, rather. And so, um, yeah, my diet was um, protein bars, kind of snacks during the day, and I'd have them cut up already um, in this little, I call it my trough, so that was my bag where I could just open it and, yeah. you know, inhale all the food and then for dinner and breakfast yeah there was dehydrated meals um, which I absolutely loved it's a US brand um, called Backpackers Pantry you can't get them in the UK but they very kindly sent them from the US um, to Chile for me which is where you fly to Antarctica from and they are just heaven and I, I've got many left over and I honestly I can't be bothered cooking um, I have one <laughs> left for dinner it's really nothing it's gross and I totally disagree I think they're amazing <laughs> oh, that's hilarious <laughs> just, yeah because I'm thinking back to like military days where we had to have military food the like boil in the bag stuff and I'm like I just couldn't I just don't think I could eat that for for you know nearly two months I just don't think I could do it without wow well, things have changed there's some yeah. amazing ones now yeah 
Hopefully, hopefully for them too, right? Um, yeah. Cool, Han. So uh, one of my last questions is what's like the best advice that you could give to our listeners on, yeah, maybe just going for a goal or any advice that you that you think would be worthy for them, you know, whether this is kind of in their realm or whether it's not? Yeah, I think oh, most important bit, I probably got a few kind of things that I live my life by. Um, I think for me in the kind of adventure world uh, or sports world, um, I think it's really important to always promote other women around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I've always found that to be the case, but I did recently meet someone who wasn't that way inclined and it really shook me. Like I couldn't really get my head around it or understand their position. Um, so I definitely now, I didn't think I needed to be said, but I do now kind of include that as a, as a top tip. Um, advice that we should all be doing it's still a very male dominated kind of world and yeah. um, coverage in the media for these kind of things is also still very male dominated I think everyone's got their part that they can play in improving that and and improving the number of women to get involved um, and I certainly know when I'm kind of doing interviews or blogs about uh, the adventures exhibitions I've done um, I wanted to encourage other women to do this too like there is absolutely nothing special about me um it's just nothing more than hard work and this is what I happen to want to do and not everyone wants to ski still to the South Pole obviously um but if you do then go for it and if you don't you know what's your equivalent of that um and yeah um just support each other in in getting there because it's not always a straightforward uh path um and then I think if I mean yeah the Supporting women means so much to me because um, when I first kind of, so I'm going a bit off piece here, but when I first started out in the kind of ultra running world and got that contract to go pro, um, I actually moved to Morocco for about uh, just over three and a half months um, of basically living in a tent in the middle of nowhere with and my coach is Mohamed Ahansel, who's won the Marathon de Saab God knows how many times. I think between him and his brother, more than 10. Um, and he was my coach, um, and I trained with some Moroccan kind of up-and-coming um, women runners out there. And I really struggled <clears throat> with knowing. So first of all, they were far superior runners um, than I am, no doubt. And um, But they didn't have that kind of sponsorship set up. Uh, they couldn't get sponsorship. Mm-hmm. It was really difficult in their country. And, it, and so I really, really struggled with that because they were obviously better than me. And so I came back from that and set up. Um, a women's running team where the idea being that I could use kind of my platform to get sponsorship for us as a whole team Um, and that worked really well so companies you know it was difficult at first I had definitely had some companies be like oh but um, (laughs) what's their Instagram handle and how many followers do they have and I'm like they they don't have a smartphone Um, let me kind of do that part of writing the blogs and you know supporting working with the brand that way but you're sponsoring us as a team yeah and I find that to be the easiest way to kind of open up those opportunities and get these women involved. And it's now something I do on an annual basis. Um, it hasn't happened this last year because of Antarctica. <clears throat> but that that is, I really love that. And so I think if there's anything you can do while you're on your journey of your adventure, whatever it is that kind of supports and promotes other women around you, then um, uh, yeah, my advice would be in any way you can have a small um please do that. Awesome. Yeah. I I mean, I agree 100%. Um, I think the more that we can 
you know, help women, but I mean, help, help men as well, right? Like we're not, <laughs> we, we don't just have to help the women, but we, when we club together and when we can do things together, we can be so much stronger than otherwise. Absolutely. And like there's, it's funny. I think it's become a lot less these days, but I remember growing up and feeling like there was a lot of competition between women never really understanding why I was like why why like why can't we work together like why can't we do this together um I think there's been a bit of a shift in that to be fair yeah I agree there definitely has been um which is awesome and I think it's so important but um yeah it's a really good advice and just knowing that you know what even if there's someone who's doing something that maybe you don't agree with or something just be nice and support them on their journey right we're all we're all in different paths of life, but if we can all try and work together and club together, we're going to have so much more of an impact on the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, it's also understanding that if others have something that you want to be doing or wish you were doing, or they have something that you want, there isn't this kind of finite pool yes. of whatever oh gosh, that is. Yes. And that, you know, if they have it, it's unavailable to you. Um, so each true. of them worked for it um, and it's it's available to, to you too. Yeah, there's so much abundance in the world, right? We can all we we all can have everything that we want, and there'll be plenty more to go around. Um, cool. So, one last question is: What's one of the scariest things you've ever done? I mean, obviously, we've been through quite a bit, but one of the I reckon the scariest thing that you've ever done. Uh, do you know? I probably would have said skiing on that leg injury, and it's like what I talked about earlier. It's kind of scared me mentally. They're going to be, yeah. you know what else can I do but actually I think um I um did this uh six-day race through the Dashit desert in Iran and I think it was on day three or four um temperatures reached 66 degrees celsius wow and it was not a safe race um I think they've now changed it was the first year the race took place so they've changed when it takes place you can't um be exposed to temperatures that high again um, oh and gosh. I didn't, you know, recommend anyone take part in the race until they did that because it was it was dangerous. And I, I have no idea how I ran through that heat. Um, but I do remember um, I was uh, leading the race and so there wasn't really anyone around me and it got dark in the desert. And I remember this was near the end of the long stage, so I can't remember how long that would have been, but like say like a double marathon distance. So you're tired and worn out already, it's getting dark. And I remember them telling us just before the end of the long stage It'll be dark, but you get to this kind of area. I don't know if it was called, like, had a local name of, like, Snake Mountain or whatever, but it was just kind of this, this <laughs> dune area where there was more trees and so there's more likely to be snakes and all sorts. Um, and any time, I also had a head torch on, but any time I looked left or right, I'd see eyes. <laughs> and it was like, oh, I don't oh even gosh. want to know what's in there. It's just like, you know, keep looking forward, keep going. And I remember I'm running along, and all of a sudden something hits me in the head, um, like right by the the head torch and I was like oh my god what on earth is that and there's like blood um, coming down to my eye I look down on the floor and there's an injured bat <laughs> and so this bat flew into my head oh um, my goodness head yeah concussed itself it's lying on the floor like flapping its little wings and I'm like oh my god that's back um and then as I'm looking down so it's in the desert so you're wearing sand gaiters um so sand doesn't get into your running shoes and I look down and there is a um scorpion oh my gosh leg. yeah and <laughs> uh I just screamed I've never <laughs> ever screamed that was like an immediate absolute this is 
freaking terrifying. Get off me, everything. <laughs> um, and I ran and ran and ran. Um, and I turned around and I remember seeing the scorpion was still coming after me and the bat is still there flapping. And then I was like, do I try and rescue the bat? Like, what do I do? I don't know. The bat looks terrifying. And I ran off and I remember, I think I had about 10K left to get to the end. And as I arrived, and it must have been like two, three in the morning, the race director was like, because you have a live tracker on you. Yeah. He was like, what happened in the last 10K? <laughs> suddenly, like, whoa, I just picked up all this speed. And I was like, oh my God, is this bat and this scorpion? <laughs> he's like what's that blood on your head so in terms of like yeah the scariest thing that (laughs) definitely comes to mind um but then other than that I think just a couple of the crevasses I skied across in Antarctica yeah that's pretty hairy and then um I don't know the name given to it but you hear this kind of like thumping sound when you're skiing over um snow that hasn't yet compacted down yeah and it it, and it kind of moves and it all and that that is that's really scary yeah. Yeah, and you know it's fine, but you still have moments of like, oh my god, okay, where what's going to happen here? Um, well, sometimes yeah, you don't know it's fine, right? You're just like, oh my gosh, have I taken a wrong turn? Am I like on a hole right now? Yeah, and then also when you're skiing in this white eye, you can't see any of it anyway. So you're like, I have no idea what I'm oh skiing on right now. But let's just keep going. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's. I mean, especially when you're dragging everything with you, right? It's not like you're just as light as a person. You've got everything with you. Yeah, um, my I'm little, curious, my did, little... did you have like ice screws that you'd like, that you'd put in to like, just in case at any point and then cut your, cut ropes off? Yeah, or really... no, that's a really good question. So to be allowed to go and do something solo like this, um, there's quite a couple of hurdles to, to jump through. So the British government gives you sign off to go and that sign off is administered by um, an Antarctica kind of expeditions company called ALE. Okay. Um, and they check you have everything um, to stay safe. And so part of that is being able to execute a uh, self-rescue from a crevasse. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting one because you can sort of engineer that um, when you're practicing and you're able to do it. It's quite difficult. But in the kind of field, I don't think anyone's ever successfully executed a self-rescue because obviously no crevasse is this kind of perfect crevasse yeah. that you'll get out of. Um but, yeah, you should take um, ice screws with you um, and some ropes. You can kind of make prussics um, and edge your way out. Um, I decided not to, um, and that was a, a weight consideration. Um, didn't want to take all that extra kit. Um, and then also I think from all the kind of homework I'd done and people I spoke to, I think there's more value in learning how to spot a crevasse and avoid them yeah, um, yeah, for sure. rather than hoping you'll be able to get out but you know the kind of safety thing I did have was um when you're a soloist doing something like this I skied with a backpack on and in the backpack was a second um emergency satellite phone some food an extra jacket extra gloves so if you were kind of yeah. caught in a crevasse you could um stay safe until help arrived you hope nice yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um cool thanks and that was really really awesome and really eye-opening I can't believe I mean, I'd, I'd heard about your, um, like, some of the things that you'd gone through, but I, I didn't quite know to the extent of what, what it meant. And, yeah, I'm, I'm really stoked that you jumped on. And thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that you can get your Antarctica tattoo over your scar. I reckon you should do that. <laughs> <laughs> if, not, if not somehow, anyway. Um, but, yeah, have you got any last words or anything that maybe the people, our listeners, can find you if they want to connect with you or support you, send them la- your love, send them their love? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I guess I'm mostly active on Instagram, and my name or handle there, if you like, is Jenny um, dot Wordsworth. And I guess I would say um, I mentor quite a few 
um, women who um, want to do something similar or um, other expeditions. And so I'm always kind of available for that. I really enjoy doing that. And um, I very much look forward to helping the next woman go and um, break that speed record because it's definitely doable. Um, so if anyone out there wants to do it, give me a shout. <laughs> awesome. If anyone's listening, fancy's doing that after <laughs> yeah. listening to this podcast. I'll be I'll so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, honey. That was wicked. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and head on over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listener and give us a five-star review. Don't forget to join our free Facebook community called She's Unshakable, where we get to share our tips and tricks and experiences with building courage, resilience, and belief in ourselves. I look forward to meeting you in there.